You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. All the gods and goddesses of volcanoes, to me, are kind of sexy, right? I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. All volcanoes, all the time. Wall-to-wall volcanoes, kids. That's what we're doing. Is that what we are now? A volcano podcast? That's what we're doing. That's what we're here to do. That's who we are. (laughs) So we are back with another episode in our Ancient Natural Disasters series. Shocker of volcanoes involved. This is actually not a natural disaster or volcanic eruption that I'd heard of before. Jenny brought it to my attention. And as soon as she did, I literally shouted dibs in the most obnoxious way possible, like super obnoxious. I love that I actually alerted you to the existence of a volcanic eruption you didn't already know about. (laughs) No, isn't that wild? So I was so excited to dig into this story of an epic ancient volcanic eruption, one that shaped the landscape, spawned a mythology, and created an ancient psychic trauma for a people that literally I was Googling it as I was talking to Jenny. The first time, right? Every time. I haven't been talking to you at all without Googling this natural disaster. Like, did you think you had my undivided attention? You can't give me a volcanic eruption I know nothing about and not expect me to fall down the deepest, darkest timeline of a rabbit hole. Well, I will say that um, volcanoes are jealous mistresses. They truly are. So the area that we're talking about and the volcano that we're talking about is now a national park. And that park has its own mythology and legends that surround it. Stories of unexplained occurrences, strange events, and hauntings. This disaster is so steeped in ancient lore and modern urban legend that I actually could not get my research done fast enough. That's how excited I was to start writing. Y'all, this volcano is not Vesuvius, and it's not Thera, and it's not Mount Fuji. Um, And we covered some of the Mount Fuji eruptions two seasons ago when we talked about Akigahara. The volcanic eruption I'm talking about is Crater Lake. And Crater Lake, I have to say, is similar to Aokigahara in the, in the fact that it's, it mixes mythology and ghost stories and urban legends and ancient mythology and volcanoes together in this like very strange, spooky package. It does. I was like very excited to see like 
another culture where that was the case. I mean, I'm sure when I dig into like Pompeian Thera, there'll be some of that too, because you can't have something this epic and scary happen to your landscape and to your people without there being some kind of psychic trauma. But anyway, as a self-proclaimed volcano nerd, I was shocked that I knew nothing about Crater Lake. As a fan of ghost stories and urban legends, I was also shocked not to have heard the tales about Crater Lake. And as a true crime fan, shocked and appalled. Horror, the horror on my face as I started digging into this. Because Crater Lake is rife with stories. So now we're going to unravel the mysteries of Crater Lake. Mysteries that stem from an ancient natural disaster. If you were to visit Crater Lake today, you could easily be deceived by how blue and beautiful the water is. It's an oval nestled amongst towering snow-capped mountains. It's otherworldly blue, and there's a reason for that, which we will explain later. It's six miles wide, I believe. So at the west of the lake is a large coned island. It looks a little bit like a witch's or wizard's hat. It's like a cone. This island is aptly named Wizard Island is a volcanic cinder cone, meaning it is basically the volcano. It's a cinder cone volcano within a volcano. And it's open in the summer for hikers and tourists. It's accessible only by boat, and it's covered by green trees and trails. But you cannot stay overnight on Wizard Island. Because, well, there's urban legends about it, let's just say. Crater Lake is located in the Cascade Mountain Range in southern Oregon. The Cascade Mountains stretch from Canada through Alaska, Washington, and into Seattle. The tallest is Mount Rainier, and while many of these mountains are snow-capped, there are volcanic mountains in this range, famously Mount St. Helens, which erupted in 1980, 2004, and 2008. This range is part of the Pacific Ring of Fire. Not all of these snow-covered mountains are volcanoes, but there are some hiding in plain sight, or, in the case of Crater Lake, sunken into the earth after the mountain erupted and caved in on itself in the most violent possible fashion. I'm just going to stop right now and let you all know something I learned. When you have those volcanic eruptions that happen, the really big epic ones, they're usually called climactic events. And I'm sorry, when I found this out, I just turned to Jenny. I was like, there's some really horny scientists out there who are making volcanoes super sexy, right? Am I right? Or is it just me? No, it's definitely not just you. I mean, I agree. I agree. (laughs) Anyway, when that mountain caved in on itself, had its epic eruption, that was the climactic event. Crater Lake National Park sits on land that belonged to the Klamath tribes, Klamath, Medoc, and Yahuskin band of snake people. It is a sacred place to these people. In the Treaty of 1864, Crater Lake should have been protected as part of the tribal land, but it wasn't. The Treaty of 1864 granted the Klamath, Modoc, and Yahuskin Paiute tribes sovereignty to rule over their own lands. These lands were separate from the U.S. and not to be governed by the U.S. and its laws. It was to be governed by the tribal laws and customs of these people. In perpetuity. The treaty also outlined the borders between the tribal land and the U.S., At the signing of the treaty, Crater Lake was within the bounds of the tribal lands. However, the U.S. did not adhere to those boundaries or terms set out in the treaty and began encroaching onto those lands. Little by little, sections of land were colonized by the U.S. government, land that the Klamath people had lived on for over 8,000 years. By 1902, Crater Lake became part of the Crater Lake U.S. National Park System, meaning it was no longer a part of the tribal lands as promised by the Treaty of 1864. And that's pretty much everything I found about the treaty, which was essentially this land should have originally stayed with the Klamath people. 
But little by little, that treaty was eroded and essentially it became a part of the national park system. I believe it was either like the second or third national park that was ever founded. I might be wrong, a little fuzzy on that, but it was it was very early on when the, our park system was created. Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the U.S., and the seventh or sometimes the ninth is a little bit fuzzy how they measure the depth of lakes. It's complicated, and I'm not getting into it. So let's just say the seventh or sometimes the ninth deepest lake in the world. It's about 20 miles round and six miles across. Today, Crater Lake is also riddled with incredible urban legends and ghost stories, from hauntings to phantom campfires to unexplained deaths and disappearances, aliens, Bigfoot, and even a lake monster. You could almost be forgiven for not knowing the ancient trauma that created this lake and only understanding the modern ghoulish legends. But this is not modern history, fangirl, as Jenny has reminded me many times. And while we'll be talking about some of these more modern stories, we are here for all the ancient myths and, in my case, all the volcanoes. As I said earlier, Crater Lake is deceptively beautiful. Looking at the lake, you could easily be tricked into thinking it was just a natural wonder, a blue mirror hidden amongst the mountains. But you'd be wrong, because Crater Lake is actually a volcanic caldera, formed after an epic eruption roughly 7,700 years ago. An eruption witnessed by humans and memorialized by mythology. This is the story of Crater Lake. The Klamath and Modoc people tell the story of the creation of Crater Lake in their mythology. This is a myth that has been passed down through thousands of generations. The creation of Crater Lake happened, as Jen said, roughly 7,700 years ago. We have evidence of people being present for this event. The evidence is in the ashes. In the ash layer of this volcanic eruption. It's in the ash layer of this volcanic eruption. And we're going to talk about how big that ash layer is a little bit later. But essentially, the ash layer that you're looking at here was so wide and encompassing that they mark uh, geological time, just like they do with the Thera eruption or the Boudicca burn layer in the UK, which is not um, volcano related. But yeah, so this one in particular, that's how we know that people witnessed it because of the stuff found in that ash layer. Continue, my love. Alrighty. So yeah, as Jen said, the evidence is in the volcanic ash layer of this volcano. We found moccasins, that is blowing my mind, moccasins, obsidian tools, spears, and other artifacts in the ash layer that's been tied to this eruption. So people saw and got caught up in this volcanic eruption, and they chronicled it in their own mythology. So before we get into what scientists think the eruption would have looked like, we just want to tell you about what that mythology is, because it's just so fascinating. So this is mythology from the Klamath and Modoc people. From this area. So the legend that I'm going to recount to you, sometimes I'll be recounting it and sometimes I'll be directly quoting. This version comes from Barbara Alatore, who is a Klamath tribal member and historian. She is a direct descendant of two different signers of the Treaty of 1864. She is a distinguished researcher and historian of the Southern Oregon tribes. This is a quote from her telling of the Crater Lake creation myth. Quote, Before time began, giant spirit beings came down to earth through a hole in the sky, pushing ice down to build giant mountains. The first mountain built was Big Mountain, where Mount Mazama now stands. And what is Mount Mazama? Mount Mazama, as I've mentioned a few times, was the volcanic mountain that eventually collapsed in on itself and became Crater Lake. 
So when we say Mount Mazama, we're talking about a volcanic mountain that will eventually become our lake. Okay, continuing the quote, quote, The spirit beings created the rest of the Klamath terrain by digging tunnel-like caverns beneath the earth, pushing up the hills and mountains, forming the Cascade Range. They dug the channels for rivers, created the marshes, and hundreds of springs bubbled up from underground. Giant trees, meadows, and plants sprung up everywhere. Upon completion, all of the spirits returned to the afterworld, where others may not go until after death. Only the spirit chief remained behind to create the people. The spirit chief made his home inside Mount Shasta, at the southern end of this territory. From his spirit bag, he selected two bones as he soared over what is now Klamath Lake, where he laid the bones over one another, giving birth to the Klamath. Two bones were crossed near Mondokney Lake, known today as Tool Lake. Finally, near Goose Lake, bones were laid together to become the progenitors of the Yahuskin and Walpape people. Can we just stop for a minute? I really wanted to include this. It's not in the notes because the description of what they're talking about here is like actually how glaciers formed the Cascade Mountains, how volcanic springs underneath would have had these channels going there. Like, I was absolutely fascinated to see this in their mythology because they're telling you the area here had a lot of glaciers passing down throughout different times. They're telling you about the passage of glaciers. Didn't that blow your mind? Wow. (laughs) That is so cool. Yeah, they're talking about glaciers. To me, one of the things that has been the biggest joy of this job has been getting to look in mythology and find that intersection with history how they use their stories to explain something and eventually how those stories and science line up to tell us they're talking about a glacier. They're talking about ice ages that they probably witnessed or people before them witnessed and brought down through their lore. I mean, my mind is, as always, blown. What blows my mind always is just how much older mythology can be than what we think it is. It's, it's just so incredible. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think, to me, a lot of the exposure I've had is with my heart, where it will always be in Greco-Roman mythology. Y'all know that I know a lot about that area. So, you know, when I started digging into like Aokigahara and Crater Lake and Teotihuacan, and you start looking at other mythologies, the cross-sections of what they're showing you about what these people knew about what happened in their landscape and how ancient it is. We're seeing them talk about the mythologizing of glaciers coming down and shaping the world. I'm not saying there isn't old stuff like that in Greco-Roman mythology, and, and I've talked about a lot, and we will talk more this season about like the theory eruption and what's in the mythology. But this is even older, in my, in my opinion, and it's so fascinating. Yeah, because the last the last ice age they could have been talking about is what, like Younger Dryas, which would have been like 11,700 years ago, as opposed to the Thera eruption, which was what, 1600 BC, potentially, or something like that. So yeah, it, it is a lot older. Yeah, and that's not to say like all of that, there is an older stuff that we don't know or whatever. There might be. That's not that's not what we're discussing here. What we're discussing here is just how old this mythology is and what it's telling us about how people preserved what happened to the land around them in the memory of that. And now, now in 2023, we can say what they're talking about is glaciers. My mind always is blown. And in particular, this episode just blew my mind so many times that like when I was writing the end of it, I was a little bit a little bit weepy. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Mind blowing. So 
Once the creator realized that humanity was okay, he decided that he would retire to his home. He had other important work to do. Look, he had stuff to do. He was a busy guy. But he watched over the people of the Klamath Basin and their sacred mountains. So apologies if we mispronounce any of these names. We have not been able to find pronunciation guides that we were 100% sure about, so we are just going to do our best. Every once in a while, Manadolkni, the spirit chief of the below world, got curious about what was happening in the upper world. And he would just kind of sneak out of his realm and visit the human realm. And one day, he happened to cast his eye upon a very beautiful maiden named Loha. Loha was the daughter of the Klamath chief. And she was a woman after our own hearts because... Though she had many, many suitors, she was committedly single. She refused to marry. She was not interested in that married life. Oh, no. She was a single lady. She was going to stay single. She was a bachelor. Let me tell you what. A bachelorette. (laughs) Except for the part about dating people. Not into it. No one gets a rose. (laughs) No one gets a rose. (laughs) So, Manadolkni was not your average suitor. He was the spirit chief of the below world. He was used to getting his way. So... He sent a trusted emissary to propose to Loha, pretty sure that there was absolutely no way she was going to turn this proposal down. I mean, he was a catch. He was a god. Who was going to say no to him? So one night during a ceremony, Monodolkni's emissary arrived. He was decked in a hooded wolf skin. He was dashing and looked quite scary. He came bearing lots of incredible gifts, and he made his pitch to Loha and her family telling her that all these amazing gifts were for her and her family, and that she would have eternal life. All she had to do was marry Monodolkni and live in the big mountain, Mount Mazama. And Loha was rightly terrified. She did not want to marry uh, Monodolkni. And she really didn't want to live in the big mountain that was also a volcano. She rejected his proposal, and things did not go well. The Klamath chief called together the elders and medicine men to decide what to do with this problem of Loha. She rejected Manadolkni's proposal, and they all knew that things were going to kick off, maybe in a climactic eruption moment. Everyone obviously cared a great deal for Loha because they agreed to send her into the woods to hide, and they made a pact not to tell Manadolkni or his emissaries where Loha was. Everyone in the village agreed, and I was just like, Again, just bowled over by that. I was like, wow. Yeah, because there are myths that might go this way where her consent might not be respected. And in this one, it is. And that's awesome. I mean, listen, we've done a lot of mucking around in ancient Greek mythology and women are not necessarily treated as well all the time. <laughs> yeah, we wrote a book on women of myth. You know, we, we saw some real dark sides to all mythology and some good sides. So we wanted to share this quote from the rest of the story. I think this is um, from the original telling that you found by uh, Barbara Alatore, right? Mm-hmm. So, quote, Manadolkni, upon learning the outcome of his marriage proposal, ordered his emissary back to the village chief to demand the whereabouts of the maiden, Loha, threatening revenge upon the people and destruction of their land if she was not brought to him post-haste. She didn't say post-haste. I just added that. Fear-stricken, but loyal. No one in the village would speak. They were not going to tell this dude where Loha was. Absolutely not. Hearing of their silence, Manadolkni shook like thunder and stormed off in a violent rage, running back and forth in the passageways beneath the big mountain. That would be uh, Mount Mazama. Throwing lightning bolts as he went, causing Mount Mazama to explode. Can we just stop for a minute? They're talking about the passageways beneath the big mountain. They're talking about caves that were probably carved out by 
like lava and magma and everything else. They're talking about magma chambers. Yeah. I'm losing my mind a little bit. Okay, so anyway, so this this dude, Manadalkni, is now running around in these passageways beneath the mountain, magma chambers, throwing lightning bolts as he went, causing the mountain to explode with such great force that the top of the mountain blew off. Giant fireballs shot out, exploding deafening booms five times in rapid succession. Spewing fire from his mouth, the evil chief ran to the top of the caldera to survey the destruction as fire and lava devoured the beautiful forest and lay waste to the villages of the people. Fleeing in terror for their lives, the people took refuge in Klamath Lake, crying and praying for the good spirit chief to save them. As lava rained down on the people like hot pitch, the good spirit chief, standing on Mount Shasta, heard two of the eldest medicine men of the tribe volunteer to sacrifice themselves, believing only a sacrifice would stop the chief of the below world's vengeance. Quote within the quote, We elders, with not many moons to live, should be the ones to follow our torches into the great fire to calm the wrath upon our people. As the people watched, the two oldest and most respected medicine men waded out of Klamath Lake's waters, lit their torches, and began their courageous trek toward the mountain, toward the high ridges surrounding the crater of the volcano. When the good spirit chief saw the elders' unselfish and brave deed, he flew over them to face Monodalkani in battle and save his people. The two spirit chiefs fought. Enraged, silhouetted against the red glow rumbling along the cascades. The mountains shook and the earth trembled until finally the good chief forced Monodalkani back underground and collapsed the volcanic debris down onto the entrance to the underworld, creating a giant crater where the mountaintop used to be. No longer the big mountain. The Indians, this says Indians in this quote, I'm just reading what's here, renamed the mountain Tumsumne, or mountain with top cut off. Medicine men sang their sacred songs in thanks for the victory as the rains came filling the empty crater with water, and the lake became known as a most sacred place, a holy place, to the Indians, again, that's what it says in the quote, who kept the area secret from outsiders for over 7,000 years. Wow. Right? I really wanted to include this and not reword certain parts of this Quote, not because I'm lazy, but because it's really telling us something. And I wanted to like unpack it together. And what we're seeing here is a real description of what that volcanic eruption would have looked like. The earthquake that would have happened with the mountain shaking, the red in the sky as the eruption is happening. The five big booms, like it's so specific, right? Yes. Taking refuge in the lake and watching the lava flow down. The debris raining down like pitch. It's so specific. You know, what's interesting here is the relationship to the mountain, to the area. I know, and I'll talk about it in a minute, that Mount Mazama had other eruptions. They weren't epic climactic ones. This area is, uh, you know, in the Ring of Fire, it is an earthquake-prone area. So there were probably lots of earthquakes. I'm really fascinated to learn more about the relationship the people had with the land and how that would have fed into their mythology. So like I said, I shared this really these two really long quotes and didn't reword them because I really wanted this to be as authentic as I could have it. The quote is part of an oral history that has been passed down for more than 7,000 years. And, you know, this is still sacred in, in the culture of these people. So I just feel like we do need to, to mention that. 
But this story tells of an epic volcanic eruption, an eruption so big that it would create Crater Lake, the deepest lake in the U.S., and decimate Mount Mazama. And here's the thing. This account, this story, actually ties in really well with the science of the eruption as scientists think it would have happened. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So let's break this down. Long before there was Crater Lake, there was a mountain. And this was Mount Mazama. Mount Mazama loomed over the present-day Crater Lake. It was about 12,140 feet high, and it was the mountain in the myth that Monodalkni lived in. Mount Mazama was, and is still, a volcano, uh, and about 7,700 years ago, give or take, it did indeed erupt. This was, as I mentioned before, a climactic eruption event. To be fair, Mount Mazama had been continuously erupting off and on for about 42,000 years. I've seen elsewhere that it was more like half a million years, but things got more intense around 30,000-ish years ago, give or take, before its epic lake-creating event. In fact, Mount Mazama's continuous eruptions created a, and this here that I'm going to quote from you is from the Geological History and Summary of Mount Mazama on the United States Geological Society's government website, quote, complex of overlapping shields and stratovolcanoes, each of which probably was active for up to 70,000 years. In short, Mount Mazama and the volcanic structures it contained was huge. And again, that just makes me think about the craters that Monodalkni was running through, you know? Are you saying that Mount Mazama is like, or was multiple volcanic mountains in one mountain? That seems to be what that quote is telling me. Yeah, it was multiple structures within one structure. And I also want to say that the height of Mount Mazama in its heyday was 12,000 something, about 12,140 feet high. Mount Rainier, which is the highest mountain in that range and is an incredibly high mountain, is only 14,411 feet tall. So this would have rivaled Mount Rainier as a mountain that dominated this landscape. Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, what was going on inside Mount Mazamo was building to a final epic showdown. These last eruptions that blow up a volcano, as I've mentioned several times now, are called climactic eruptions. 
So I'm just going to keep calling it that over and over again. You're welcome. We're just going to keep leaning into the porn hub of that. Absolutely. So the climactic eruption of Mount Mazama was so big and widespread that the ash layer from this eruption has been used to accurately date events all over the Pacific Northwest. Much like the Thura eruption or even Boudicca's burn layer, this was one of those markers in time that allowed scientists to see what came before and after this incredible event. And so, you know, we're going to tell you how that event went down as far as scientists can describe it. This is a quote from an article by Stephen R. Mark about the climactic eruption. Quote, The climactic eruption began with a towering column of pumice and ash rising from a vent located northeast of the summit, which resulted in deposits as thick as several centimeters as far away as present-day central Alberta, which is about approximately 1,200 miles away. The phase of this eruption included pyroclastic flows, high-speed and super-hot avalanches that resulted from the vent widening and erupting at an increasing rate. Having drained a large portion of the magma chamber, the volcano lacked a foundation and began to collapse inward. The eruption entered a ring-vent phase, where contents in the magma chamber were forced out through cracks and fractures in a shape roughly corresponding to what later became Crater Lake. Large pyroclastic flows rushed past the mountain's flanks and onto once glaciated valleys. The eruption and collapse, which lasted only a few days, was followed by volcanism restricted to the resulting caldera. Wow. I mean, the similarity between that and what happened in the myth is just so striking. Yeah. So let's stop for a minute and really dig into both these descriptions. Because, as I mentioned, what the myth and the science are telling us are epic. Mount Mazama, one of the tallest mountains in this region, would have begun to erupt, starting with an earth shaking and then a huge column of ash. And this would have blocked out the sky. The world would have turned dark. It's likely that there would have been volcanic lightning in the air and that the air would have become heavy and thick. All the moisture would have been removed from it. Breathing would be a trial. This ash column that formed from Mount Mazama would have been hundreds if not thousands of feet high and it would have been visible from a long way off. The ash would have meant that places as far away as 12,000 miles would have had fallout and their skies would have been darkened as they would have received a rain of ash. Or potentially it would have been carried on the wind, but we're not sure. 1,200 miles away, I cannot get over how far away that is to receive a layer of ash because we're not talking about a little bit of ash. We're talking about a layer of ash that they can date things in. Yeah, like a layer that's still visible in the geological record, so it would have been thick enough, you know, to make a real impact. Then there were the pyroclastic flows. Now, these are the events that famously froze Pompeian time. Pyroclastic flows are super hot avalanches of mostly gas and debris that travel at super speed. If you see one, odds are you will not live to tell the story. Because when a pyroclastic flow begins, it continues mowing down everything in its path until it runs out of energy. This is a description of pyroclastic flows from the U.S. Geological Society's extremely volcano porn hub website, because that's what it is. Here's the thing. All the gods and goddesses of volcanoes, to me, are kind of sexy, right? You've got Hades, you've got Pele, you've got Spirit Chief from the Below World, who I'm clearly objectifying at the moment. I don't know. There's just something sexy to me about volcanoes and volcano gods. Quote. With rock fragments ranging in size from ash to boulders that travel across the ground at speeds typically greater than 80 kilometers per hour or 50 miles per hour, pyroclastic flows knock down, shatter, bury, or carry away nearly all objects and structures in their path. 
The extreme temperatures of rocks and gas inside pyroclastic flows, generally between 200 and 700 degrees uh, Celsius, which is 390 to 1300 degrees Fahrenheit, that's hot, can ignite fires and melt snow and ice and probably lots of other things as well. Yeah, you're everything inside of you melted. Yeah, your bones and stuff. And not in a sexy way. Not in a sexy volcano daddy way. Maybe today's Satan. Um, <laughs> Maybe if you have a really unhealthy relationship with volcanoes. Ancient history fangirl, the season where we develop very unhealthy relationships with volcanoes. I feel seen right now. <laughs> Can we move on? I'm talking about pyroclastic flows. Oh, volcano daddy. Pyro py- pyroclastic. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can talk. I have a podcast. I do this for a living. Pyroclastic flows vary considerably in size and speed. <laughs> in size and speed. In force and thrust. <laughs> <laughs> this is smutty. This is a smutty, smutty volcano episode. But even relatively small flows. Oh my god, this is why I need to clear time for this, because sometimes we're fine and sometimes we're like teenage girls. I'm just trying to explain about the small flows. Small flows versus large flows. All that magma. But even relatively small flows that move less than five kilometers or three miles from a volcano can destroy buildings, forests, and farmland. On the margins of pyroclastic flows, death and serious injury to people and animals may result from burns and inhalation of hot ash and gases. Pyroclastic flows generally follow valleys or other low-lying areas and, depending on the volume of rock debris carried by the flow, they can deposit layers of loose rock fragments to depths ranging from less than a meter to more than 200 meters or up to 700 feet. Good lord. Even the small ones are pretty destructive, I'm just saying. See y'all, this is why Jenny should not ask me to blow up more volcano facts, because then i just give you all the hot stuff. Literally. I asked Jen to blow up my summer, and this is what happened. She did. So, you have pyroclastic flows reshaping the landscape around the volcano. And then, then, you have the collapse of the volcano itself. Because after all the magma and the pyroclastic flows were ejected into the air, the volcano became unstable. Because the base was essentially empty. And it caved in on itself, creating the epic crater that would become Crater Lake. And just like that, Mount Mazama was gone. What was left was a massive hole or crater. This crater filled up over time with fresh water, and at the west corner of the lake, a new cone formed, an island that would eventually be called Wizard Island. But Jenny, where did the volcano go? Well, Jen, the answer is simple. The volcano didn't go anywhere. Mount Mazama is still with us today. The huge magma chambers still exist just below Crater Lake, Monodogny's cave, his condo, under the mountain. And that is part of what has led to Crater Lake's incredible blue waters. One thing you will notice about Crater Lake if you ever go there is that it is a stunning, unearthly blue. It's a freshwater lake, and it has no inlets, no springs, nothing. It has no way that the water gets in or out. It's contained in an oval surrounded by snow-topped mountains fed only by rainwater and snowmelt. This makes Crater Lake unique in a lot of regards. Because it doesn't get outside sediments or pollutants from streams, the water is incredibly clear. It's the clearest in the world. You can see over 100 feet down. And it is very blue. And that is because of the depth of this lake. This lake is very cold, and it's almost 2,000 feet deep. 
the depth of the lake doesn't even go into the magma chamber. That's just how deep the lake is. That's just how deep the caldera is. So the color comes from the way the sunlight reflects on the lake. There are very few sediment particles in the water. Those are, you know, particles that would change it brown or kind of green or a darker blue. So that means that the sunlight reflects back nothing but water. So that's why you have a very blue, beautiful, ethereally blue lake. A lake that was once a mountain and still is very much a volcano. So here's a weird water-related mystery for you guys. One of many mysteries about Crater Lake. So Crater Lake's precipitation rate, meaning the amount of water that is added into the lake every year, is twice what the evaporation rate is, meaning that the amount of water that goes into the lake is twice the amount of the water that should be leaving the lake. And yet that lake has never overflowed. It's only like frozen over twice in like the history of it, of like white people measuring that stuff. Hardly ever frozen that we know of, like totally frozen over. It doesn't appear to have ever overflowed, even though it's got this weird spooky thing with its precipitation where the amount of water that goes in is twice the amount that evaporates out. And, you know, as as we've said before, there aren't any outlets. So there's no streams going out, like taking the water out. There's no underground springs, no nothing. That we know of. I mean, there's got to be underground caverns or something, right? There has to be, but I guess nobody has dug down that deep. Where does the water go? Like, we don't know. This is from an article called 12 Things You Didn't Know About Crater Lake National Park. Quote, because Crater Lake has no outlets leading to other water sources, the changing water level of the lake presents an interesting scientific question. Precipitation rates are more than twice the evaporation rates. So there is a lot of water that seemingly goes unaccounted for. Scientists have discovered that steady seepage is what maintains the water balance. Water seeps out of the caldera's walls at a rate of about 2 million gallons of water an hour. Oh my gosh, it is not waterproof, you guys. It seems like there should be a lot of, like, currents just going through the rock. I don't know. That's a lot. 2 million gallons of water an hour. The mystery scientists are still studying is where all of that water goes. No paths, springs, or other water sources have been found to carry the same water as the lake. So they've tested the water in bodies of water nearby, and none of them have that same water with its same sort of chemical makeup, I guess. With complex dynamics, Crater Lake's water level will remain a subject of wonder and study for years to come. That water just sort of disappears. Yeah, in short, we don't actually know where all that water goes or why Crater Lake just doesn't overflow every year. I mean, I'm always going to shout the same thing, right? It all goes into a volcano. But that doesn't make me right. (laughs) Jen just wants to shout about volcanoes anyway, so you can't really credit that as meaning anything in particular. (laughs) Yeah. This isn't the only mystery associated with Crater Lake. There are lots of other mysteries and urban legends that have sprung up over the years. And even though we are ancient history fangirl, I've been given special dispensation from Jenny to tell you a few of these mysteries. As if I could stop you. I know. As if she could. She's like, oh, Jenny gave me permission. I'm like, I don't recall you ever asking for permission, but okay. Jenny's giving me forgiveness because it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Anyway, first, let's talk about Wizard Island. Our book... Women of Myth is out in bookshops and online. It's available worldwide in hardback, ebook, and audio. Women of Myth tells the stories of 50 exceptional heroines, goddesses, and monsters in world mythology. It's beautifully illustrated by Sarah Richard 
and it makes the perfect gift for yourself or someone else who happens to love mythology. Look for Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, as we mentioned earlier, Wizard Island is on the west side of the lake. The island is a 763-foot-high cinder cone. It's like a small volcanic eruption that happened after the big one happened inside of the giant crater. It's like a mini volcano lit, and it's only reachable by boat. You're only allowed to visit the island during the day. You are not allowed to spend the night. If you're feeling adventurous, you can hike up to the top of the island where there is a 90-foot deep crater at the summit. So anyway, the hike takes about an hour. It's just over two miles. However, you can only access Wizard Island in the summer and you have to leave by sundown. You are not allowed to camp or remain on the island after dark, no sleepovers. Most of the year, the island isn't accessible at all. There are a lot of reasons why Wizard Island is a must-visit. It's stunningly beautiful, but it's also a sacred place to the Klamath people. All of Crater Lake is originally sacred land of the Klamath people, and it should be treated that way. And it's stories about the Klamath people that have led to some of the modern legends about what happens on Wizard Island. Wizard Island is said to be the place of ghostly fires. And this story comes from a park ranger, and I'm quoting from the National Park's Travel, quote, Ranger Kerwin says Crater Lake rangers often see campfires burning on Wizard Island, but when they boat out there, the rangers find no signs of campers, no whiff of smoke, and no scorch marks on the ground. One evening, Ranger Kerwin was patrolling the roads below the rim when she spotted ten people standing around a roaring fire, camping illegally in the forest far from the designated campground. The ranger parked her car and entered the woods to contact the illegal campers, but when she reached the site, she could find no people and no campfire. Somewhat distressed by the campers' furtive behavior, the ranger got behind a tree and called for backup. Two rangers searched all over, but they still couldn't find any sign of the roaring campfire or the ten campers Ranger Kerwin had just seen moments before. When Ranger Kerwin and her partner told the other rangers about their unnerving experience, they learned that the place where Ranger Cohen had seen the phantom campers was the site of an old Park Service campground, Cold Spring they called it, and before Crater Lake was a national park, the Klamath people used it as a temporary hunting and berry picking camp. So what is happening at Crater Lake, Jenny? Is it haunted? Are the spirits of an ancient culture still there in the woods, maybe living out an ancient story? I don't know. I don't know either, but I do know that there are ghost stories about mysterious campfires on Wizard Island at night when there are actually no people there. Exactly. And here's the thing, Jenny. If it was just this one ghost story, you could almost think, you know, maybe I'm being silly and exaggerating. You know, maybe I've fallen for the hype about Crater Lake being haunted. But it's not just this one story. Much like Aokigahara, the Japanese suicide forest, Crater Lake is riddled with its own lore. Is this because of the tragic beginning through a climactic volcanic eruption? Or is something else at play? Let's dig into the creepy evidence. Okay, so it's time to talk about one of my favorite things about Crater Lake, which is the old man. So the old man is one of the things that Jenny texted me super late at night. She just texted me three words, the old man, all in caps. And my reply was a question mark. And then... I started the researching. The Old Man is a mountain hemlock log that floats in Crater Lake. This is so weird. We're going to go with he, him pronouns for the old man. <laughs> He's completely untethered and will travel as much as four miles a day. 
He's been there since at least 1896, that's when he was first documented, but he may have been there even earlier. And the wild thing is, he floats vertically in the water, straight up and down, not horizontal like you would expect a log to float. Only the top three feet of the old man is above water, and the wood is kind of a grayish-white color. The other 32 feet is below. This is a 32-foot-long log that floats vertically in Crater Lake, and it has been doing that since 1896 at least, maybe earlier. And Jenny, as someone who's lived by the water, like a body of water, a river, or the ocean, or whatever, her whole life, I have never seen a tree float this way. I have seen a lot of logs. A lot of like petrified, like huge bits of tree float down the river to the Atlantic, but they have never floated vertically. It's always horizontally. I have also been near many bodies of water in my lifetime and never in my lifetime have I seen a vertically floating log either. I can corroborate this. Yes. So anyway, the National Park Service website has a few theories about why the old man floats the way he does. Quote, Theories abound about its uprightness and travels. Though not proven, one belief is that because the lower part of the tree stump has been in the cold water for over a hundred years, its density has increased, making the old man buoyant and balanced. Others think it once held large rocks at its base, which kept it from sinking. This can't be proven. I mean, it could if you wanted to go down there and look under the chassis, shall we say, but uh, I don't think anyone really wants to do that for various creepy reasons. So the theories are really just that, theories. And the old man's floating pattern remains mysterious. The floating pattern is actually mysterious because some park rangers have observed it traveling in the opposite direction of the wind. Like you would think it would be blown around by the wind, but apparently not. Apparently not. And sometimes it will travel, I believe it's like up to four miles in a day, sometimes against the current, sometimes with the current. And if it was just the floating, I mean, the the floating is also weird, but the old man has his own secrets and, dare we say, supernatural powers. So, according to the National Park's website, in 1988, researchers brought a submersible into the lake to do research because the lake is so deep, they need a sub. (laughs) They can't just go down normally. So, they were worried about the old man knocking into their ship while they were doing this research and causing it damage. So they tied him up at the dock on Wizard Island. The old man was not amused. And again, this is a quote from the National Park website. Quote, Shortly thereafter, storms blew in, making it impossible to launch the submersible at all. When this was quickly followed by snow in August, the scientists very quietly and under the cover of night released the old man back into the lake, thus restoring the weather and the old man's freedom. In short, do not fuck with the old man. The old man does not want to be restrained, doesn't want to be tied down. (laughs) He does not. He has lived his life as a very happy bachelor, doing what he wants in that lake, and he's going to continue. So I read on some websites that rangers used to take tourists out to pose for photos while standing on the old man. This, for obvious reasons, isn't allowed anymore, and I can only assume the old man didn't approve. Rangers today are afraid of what will happen when the old man finally sinks beneath the waters of the lake. What will his eventual submersion cause? What kind of weather or other natural disaster could be awaiting us? I repeat, do not fuck with the old man. He's living his best life, protecting the lake, controlling the weather. Just don't mess with him. Do not. He controls the weather. So in addition to the old man, Crater Lake has its own phantom ship. The phantom ship is actually not a phantom or a ship. It's one of Crater Lake's two islands. So the other one is Wizard Island, which is a volcanic cone. And 
the Phantom Ship is eerie and it is beautiful and it also has a fascinating history. So it's 170 feet high, it's 500 feet long, and it's 200 feet wide. And it looks like a spectral ghost ship with sails and masts and everything just abandoned in the middle of the lake. There are some spectacular pictures of it, but it is in fact not a ship. It's actually the remains of the ancient volcanic cone from Mount Mazama, the original one. It has spires that look like ragged haunted sails, and these are the oldest rocks in the entire Crater Lake Basin. It's older than the lake itself. It's like 40,000 years old. This is older than the lake by a lot, this structure. So we haven't heard any good ghost stories about it, not to say there aren't any out there, just Jen didn't come across any in her research. It's more the mysterious natural beauty of this once volcanic cone that brings out this eerie feeling. I mean, Imagine that many years ago, people might have believed that this was a petrified ship trapped forever in a lake with no streams or outlets, doomed to sail the freezing waters of Crater Lake forever. I mean, imagine if it was like a misty day and you just came upon it out of the mist. These are some of the eerie and mysterious things in Crater Lake. I would say that they're not necessarily cryptozoology and creepiness because they are real, but it gets, believe it or not, even spookier than this. So... Park rangers have sometimes called the park a ghosts and goblins park because it looks like something out of a fairy tale. In 1853, John Hillman, the first white colonizer to see the lake, claimed to see a snow-white deer with pink eyes drinking from the rim. Since Crater Lake has been a national park, visitors have reported seeing strange sights and events. There have been two Bigfoot sightings at Crater Lake, but no photographic evidence or Bigfoot bodies have ever been found. And there have been a host of UFO sightings at Crater Lake, allegedly. This is a quote from liveandlearnjourney.com about the alleged UFO sightings. Quote, on February 4th, 1997, there was a reported UFO sighting at Crater Lake. It was explained as three discs being seen speeding across the night sky. There was also a sonic boom heard that same night. This wasn't the only time abnormal lights were reportedly spotted in this area. Strange lights periodically appear and disappear, and UFOs are said to be seen going in and out of the water. So probably a lot of what people are seeing has to do with a lack of other lights because this is a national park, but also potentially the way light reflects on the lake because of how blue it is. I mean, I also think the reality is, like, probably it's just the government doing something if they're hearing sonic booms. Like, now that I've been living down by my parents for a bit here in North Carolina, I live not far from a military base. So I, like, I do see a lot of planes and strange things flying overhead that I would think is odd if I didn't know that there was a military base not too far away. Anyway, do I believe in any of these sightings? No. Do we know there's a military base near Crater Lake? I didn't do the research into it because as soon as I start seeing UFOs, I start thinking ancient aliens, and then I just, my whole entire brain is like, shut this down. Anyway, we do know that there are strange things going on at Crater Lake, and that it has nothing to do with Bigfoot, and I don't think it has anything to do with aliens. I think it has to do with actual humans. Yeah, so Crater Lake has a lot of murders and suicides. So I'm going to let Jenny tell you the story because this was the other story that she told me about Crater Lake that completely sold me on it. Again, it's a modern story about a very eerie event where a man took his own life. So Jenny, take it away. In 1947, a middle-aged man named Mr. Cornelius was visiting the park with his wife. He was hiking 
And he and his wife took a break on a snowshoot or near a snowshoot, which what's a snowshoot, Jen? It's like a it's like a place where I guess a, a small avalanche has happened or like a small snow avalanche. What's the word for a snow avalanche? Avalanche. Uh, just an avalanche. (laughs) So he took a break near this snowshoot. And during that break, he turned to his wife and handed her his wallet. He then slid down the chute in an attempt to take his own life. However, the fall only broke his leg. He then crawled to the water's edge with a broken leg and drowned himself. And I was telling Jen about this and I remember hearing about it I think on another podcast that was just about you know spooky things that happen and the way that they told it is that this man's leg was really badly broken and he hauled himself to the edge of that lake and he held his head under the water until he drowned and I remember listening to that and I'm not 100% sure that where they're getting that information I may not be remembering all of it right but I remember just listening to that and just being absolutely blown away Like, you have to be determined to do it that way, right? Like, really determined. I've looked into different things, and a lot of times when people have an unsuccessful attempt at taking their own life, they don't drag, continue to drag themselves and then hold themselves under to drown themselves. Like, it is very, you know, um, it's very eerie. Like, I've seen it in a few, like, different places. It was, like, a nice sunny day. There was absolutely no indication that he had any suicidal ideation. Everything just seemed normal. And then he just turns to his wife, hands her his wallet, and slides. I've also seen it being mentioned as jumped down the chute. That's the other thing is that the wife said that he had not expressed, he wasn't depressed. He had not expressed any desire or plan to kill himself. Again, it's just one of those creepy things about Crater Lake. And there are so many mysterious deaths and murders at Crater Lake that When I was trying to, like, put them all together for Jenny, I found it really daunting. So I cheated and found a list that was compiled by liveandlearnjourney.com. I did double check that these are all actually things that happened. So here we go. In the summer of 1910, two men were lost in the forest and they were never found. From 1926 to 1997, 13 people fell from the slopes to their death. Most were caused from standing too close to the edge for photographs and losing their footing. It's said that the lake is camera shy. In 1944, two Grumman torpedo planes were flying in formation when one of the planes vanished and the other crashed and sank to the bottom of the lake, even though the weather was clear. It was as if the lake had just snatched it from the sky. That same year, a flight trainer and gunner flew north of the lake and were never seen again. There was no wreckage, plane, or men ever discovered. In 1952, two executives from the United Motor Service disappeared in the area. Their bodies were later found near Crater Lake Highway, and it was reported that their hands were tied behind their backs and that they were both shot in the head. And this is actually a really big digression. Maybe we'll do a Patreon. It's a very famous case. There's a lot of theories about what that was. That's a case that shows up in um, true crime stuff a lot of the time, right? Because it's got a lot of mysterious components to it, which we don't really have time to go into right now, but it is very spooky. March 1971, Nick Carlino was snowshoeing the rim when a mysterious dog showed up and then suddenly disappeared. In 1974, Charles McCuller went to photograph the lake and disappeared. His pants, socks, and fragments of bone were found two years later. His jeans and belt were undone, and pieces of two broken toe bones and shin bone were found in the jeans. Twelve feet away was the crown of the skull and tiny fragments of bone. 
There was no shirt, no coat, camera, or boots discovered. It was as if the body had melted away. I kind of wonder if that one was like half eaten by scavenging animals or something. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. In October 1991, Glenn Allen Mackey disappeared. His car was discovered in a parking lot with his license, keys, passport, cash, and toiletries. However, there was never any trace of Mackey ever found. In 2009, a person was reported renting snowshoes, walking to the rim of the uh, crater, and disappearing. The body was never found. I bet that some of these bodies never found situations where people falling in. Yeah. Two people parked their car near the crater, but after the parking brake failed, they fatally fell and crashed into the jagged bottom of the caldera. Wow. That one doesn't have a date. I wonder when that happened. I don't know, but like, yeah, that's another thing to think about. The bottom of that caldera would be super jagged. The bottom of the lake, I bet, is just littered with bodies. (laughs) Sometimes these really, really cold, Bodies of water have a low oxygen content down at the bottom, so things are well-preserved. So I bet there's stuff down there that's really well-preserved. Anyway, so yeah, Crater Lake is home to a lot of tragic events and a lot of mysteries. And these events continue to spread the infamy of this beautiful park. Much like Aokigahara. I mean, there's so much synergy here, right? Like, both Aokigahara and Crater Lake began with, like, a really big volcanic eruption that probably caused a lot of loss of life. And all this mythology and stories and psychic trauma just grew up around it until it's, like, this infamous place even today. Aokigahara, like Crater Lake, is along a sacred pilgrimage path up Mount Fuji. And Crater Lake is a sacred place to the indigenous people here. They're both sacred land. Both of these parks also have a darker and more macabre association. It makes me sad, if I'm honest, to think that such a sacred place is now more well known for murders, suicides, and unexplained phenomena. And it made me really determined to tell this story of the Klamath people and their eyewitness account to a natural disaster. Because long before the Ten Plagues of Egypt, before Pompeii, before Aokigahara, we have this story from these people. And as fascinated as I am with true crime and ghost stories and urban legends, it is always the ancient past where my heart is. And the mythology of these people, that is truly fascinating and worth shedding more light and more attention on. Absolutely. Anyway, let's go back to the lake, to the volcano that made the lake, and to the future of Crater Lake. Because at its heart, Crater Lake is still a volcano. And one day, it will erupt again. And when it does, the lake and the landscape will transform once more. So here's another quote from (laughs) Volcano Pornhub. U.S. Geological Survey. Okay, can you get it right? (laughs) Actually, I mean the Geological History and Summary of Mount Mazama on the U.S. Geological Society government website. Quote, The long history of volcanism at Mount Mazama. The volcano that houses Crater Lake suggests that this volcano center will be active in the future. Future eruptions will likely occur within the caldera and probably beneath the water's surface. The interaction of magma and water may produce explosive eruptions that send tephra and large rock fragments. Tephra is rock fragments, so just rock fragments and rock fragments is what they just wrote. Out of the caldera, an eruption from a vent in the caldera wall itself might also be explosive because of the abundant groundwater within the volcano. Because we don't know where that groundwater is going. Like, it's go- it's down there somewhere. The old man knows. There's nothing the old man doesn't know. The old man is watching you masturbate. Ew! <laughs> because most of the post-caldera activity has been concentrated in the... <laughs> In the western half of the caldera, it is considered the most likely site of future activity. 
There is also a probability that a new regional volcanic vent near but not within Crater Lake will erupt in the future. So, one day, probably not in the near future, let's hope not, Crater Lake will erupt again. It's difficult to predict exactly what the eruption will look like or where it will happen, but it will happen. Maybe when the old man finally sinks beneath the waters of Crater Lake, waters that have been desperately trying to submerge him for over a hundred years. Or maybe just on a normal Tuesday, someday in the far-flung future. I hope to visit Crater Lake one day. I hope to hike to the top of Wizard Island and take in the natural beauty of this pristine lake and landscape. And when I go, I won't be thinking about Bigfoot or UFOs or any of that other nonsense. I'll be thinking about the Klamath people, who 7,700 years ago watched as their world was irrevocably changed, as their mountain blew apart and crumbled to create this lake. And I will be thinking of how very grateful I am that their story has been shared with us, because they were witnesses to history, recording the history of a volcanic eruption long before Pliny in his famous letter about Vesuvius. And I will stand in awe and truly be humbled by their words and their story. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week discussing, well, it's a secret for now. If you want to get early access to find out what that next topic will be, join our Patreon. The Patreon is at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. It is how we keep the lights on and we appreciate all the help we can get. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on social. We're on Instagram, threads, and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. Still on Twitter, as long as there is a Twitter, apparently, at Ancient History Fan. Come and say hello. Yeah, we're also sometimes on TikTok at Ancient History Fangirl when we remember to post. I think there was a period where we're trying to figure out what we're doing on TikTok. I think we've kind of lost interest and wandered off a bit, but we're still occasionally on there. So if you like what we do and you want to help support the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review because they really do help. They improve our standings in the dark arts algorithm that gets the show more attention and potentially more funding. So please share the love. And speaking of funding, we also have a Patreon, as I said. And we say this all the time, but it really is true. Our patrons on Patreon are what keep the podcast going. Without them, there would be no podcast. If you like the podcast, please consider joining. For as little as $3 a month, you're helping us keep going. Plus, you'll get extra minisodes, bonus content, interviews, videos, and more. And we have some patrons to thank, don't we, Jen? Yeah, we do. We apologize in advance if we get any of these names wrong. Thank you so much to Jack Straw, Vicky006, Summer Brighton, and Fraz Mom. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.